Hey everyone, it's Lucas and Anita. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So during the second half of the episode, we'll be chatting with Ty Haney, founder of Try Your Best, who previously founded Outdoor Voices. But before we get into that, let's talk about some of the news. So this week, we are talking about Coinbase and their new employee review system. Coinbase is a crypto exchange, and they're testing this real-time workplace feedback tool called Dot Collector. And it was actually made famous and created by hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio, who founded Bridgewater Associates. Can you tell us a little more about that, Lucas? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. I mean, in Coinbase has been having a pretty rough uh, few months. To put it lightly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So this story came out in the information this week, basically talking about how they're using this new app, which essentially allows people to, in real time, grade how their fellow employees, their managers, are doing in communicating and talking in the company. So it's basically like a real-time feedback loop. They describe it as radically transparent Transparent. You can see what people think of you in real time. It sounds like something I wouldn't necessarily like in my company, but I think Coinbase is an entity that, you know, they're trying new things with the financial system. They're also trying to do new things internally from a managerial and organizational standpoint. So this is kind of an odd thing and maybe something that feels a little dystopian, but I don't know. It's They're trying it out. They want to see how it works. The company's grown a lot since they've gone public. So they're probably just trying to like find some ways to keep internal processes scaling with the size of their employee base. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So our colleague Amanda wrote about this and she had some interesting views on this. And I think what's weird about it is like the way it works is that imagine you're an employee, you're making a presentation on Zoom and at the end of the call, your other fellow employees can literally give you like a thumbs up or a thumbs down or maybe like a, a middle. I don't know what happens if you're just <laughs> mediocre, but um, it's Going with this culture, as Amanda wrote about radical transparency, which is Ray Dalio's whole thing. He wrote this book called Principles. His company is actually called Principles, and Principles is the company that sells this software called Dot Collector. And Ray Dalio has become super famous for this approach. He's sort of seen as like a management guru. Like he runs this hedge fund and Radical transparency is super controversial because on one hand, it sounds like a good concept, right? Like get honest feedback about your employees, like let everyone just be honest with each other. Like that's an ethos that I jive with, generally speaking. But then when it comes to actually being implemented in the workplace, it can be really intimidating. It can marginalize employees who are already in marginalized groups. Just because a lot of feedback when it's given in the workplace, like people tend to sort of pattern match to people who look right. like them. And it can create a lot of, it, it can exacerbate a lot of the politics and sensitivities in the office, which is ironic because of Coinbase's own view on politics. Yeah, right. right. So I mean, Armstrong has kind of found himself in the <laughs> in front of like a firing squad of backlash over the years. One of the big things that he did was coming out with this thing saying like, we're a mission-focused company and politics gets in the way of that mission. So we don't want any of our employees to talk about politics internally, talk about it externally. This was something that came out like a few months after the Black Lives Matter protests and movement. And he was just basically saying like, you know, going forward, Coinbase isn't going to participate in political topics or issues. And this was something that got him he, yeah, a fair amount of backlash. Right. And, and he actually went so far as to say that he was going to offer any employee who didn't want to stay a severance package. So like if you 
want to have political views, you can leave, take your money and, and go away. That was basically the statement from Armstrong. Yeah, and I think it was a like non-trivial amount, but like a few dozen employees did take him up on that, it seemed. But yeah, I mean, the, Coinbase is just trying out different things. Like I said, this sounds like something I wouldn't personally like in my own company, but if I had one, but it does kind of feel like, yeah. listen, they're just trying stuff. Like it's probably going to become pretty apparent pretty quickly if this is like a disaster or not. Also, you kind of have to imagine that employee morale isn't looking super hot when a lot of these people accepted packages when the stock was trading, you know, 50% higher. So if this is bad for employee morale, it's going to be like real bad. Yeah. Well, and at Bridgewater, where they already, I mean, they pioneered the system, one third of its workers leave within two years. That's actually lower than I even imagined, but I'm sure that they have great salaries. So yeah, that kind of seems like probably seems like fairly standard almost amongst companies. Yeah. So it's interesting. And I mean, the CFO and the CPO, um, chief people officer at Coinbase used to work at hedge funds too. So it, it sort of makes sense. And the reason they'd want to implement this is maybe it could even have something to do with remote work, given that a lot of crypto companies, including Coinbase, are sort of remote first mm -hmm. and, and have a large population of employees working remotely as a way for CEOs and executive management to keep some sense of control over their workers and their employees, even while they don't all work in the same office. And I know that Elon Musk sent a pretty spicy email this week on that exact topic. Right. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are just kind of, you know, how do we increase productivity at our companies that are seeing our stock prices, you know, tank? And a lot of them are just like, all right, let's go back to bases. We tried remote work during this bull cycle, but now that things are looking rough, can we spice things up and have a more like heavy handed managerial presence? As, you know, so some companies are like, we're not going to do remote work anymore. I don't think that's even an option for most crypto companies because they're just fundamentally, you know, not organized geographically most of the time. And it's not like I'm sure Coinbase spent all this past like year trying to make their company look attractive to employees all around the world. So this isn't an option for them. So they have to use fun little dinky <laughs> managerial apps with thumbs down and thumbs up emojis to kind of see how stuff's going. They'll see how it goes. Uh, but I, yeah. yeah, I mean, the question for me is, will there be backlash from employees? And Coinbase did say recently they're actually slowing down their hiring plans. So maybe this is actually good timing for them to make an announcement that'll be a little or to start using a software that'll be unpopular with the I think with with some of their workers. Yes, we we shall see. We'll see how their stock has recovered a bit since last week, but still not doing too well. But let's move on to the next topic. Anita, this week you wrote about the founder of OnlyFans getting into the NFT world. So what did what what went down there? Yeah. So Tim Stokely is a very well-liked individual. No, he's not. I'm being sarcastic. But um, he stepped down as CEO <laughs> of OnlyFans in December last year. He's the founder. He helmed the company for about five years. And the reason he stepped down was basically, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't explicitly stated, but there was a lot of controversy around that time that he did step down. The platform had tried to ban sexually explicit content back in August because they said they were under pressure from their investors and banking partners to do so. And once Tim Stokely announced that decision, creators on the platform pushed back and they said, look, like sex workers, creators of sexually explicit content have built this platform and created a large amount of the profit. And how can you sort of push back and now ban the content that has gotten you to this point? So he's not a very popular guy. And he ended up leaving in December. And now he's starting this NFT platform called Zoop with another OnlyFans exec, RJ Phillips. And it's this NFT platform. It's going to run on Polygon. And it basically allows people to buy like virtual trading cards 
cards of their favorite influencers and content creators. And once they own those cards, they can earn rewards like airdrops, you know, like exclusive access to certain communities, things like that. But are these like OnlyFans content creators or are they like, Uh, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) that's the funny part. He actually... Uh, RJ and Tim went on and they did some interviews about Zoop and they called it a family-friendly platform. And it seemed like they were trying to really differentiate themselves from what they did at OnlyFans and what they built. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like for years, OnlyFans was kind of like seen by VCs as this thing that was like, look at all the ARR that's happening here. Like, this is a beautiful company with beautiful profits. And then all of a sudden, it was just kind of clear that like the payments network flows were like, you know, a little tenuous. Like maybe Visa and MasterCard didn't want people using their payment on flows to pay for, you know, adult yeah, content. Like porn, yeah. yeah, exactly. So then then all of a sudden, you know, they make this announcement that they're like considering banning it. There's this like hilarious backlash where they're just like, yeah, this is like when Tumblr tried to ban porn and like who cares about that platform now? So yeah, I mean, who really knows what was going on behind closed doors with that announcement? Obviously, it didn't make sense. Maybe, you know, they were trying to finish a venture round. So maybe Tim was just like, I want this company to become bigger <laughs> and it can't be bigger with its current scope. But this is kind of a weird, a little bit of a weird move. It seems like a lot of platforms are kind of doing exactly what he's trying to do. So we yeah. don't know that much about the platform yet. So we can't, I can't criticize it too heavily. Right. And and it's actually worth noting. I mean, this is a trend within crypto for building these sort of platforms that allow influencers and celebrities to build closer relationships with their fans. We don't have details on how the influencers will be involved in Zoop, but the incentive to build that sort of platform in general for an influencer I mean, if you're like a lower or mid-tier sort of influencer with a smaller audience, you can find new ways to monetize, you can diversify how you make money, and you can also build this sort of community around your following. So for them, it might be attractive, but still TBD on how exactly Zoop is going to execute on that vision. Yeah. And again, this is kind of like the latest in (laughs) which seems to be poor timing amongst a certain class of entrepreneurs looking for an entry into the Web3 space. It seems like over the past month, we have the OnlyFans founder, we got the Postmates founder, we got, you know, the head of messaging at Facebook starting a crypto startup. We got we got Adam Newman, who we talked about at length last week. So there's just like this weave of very popular Web2 startup entrepreneurs who are just like, all right, now's the time to get into crypto. And of course, they started these companies a few months ago. And now like the market's in a pretty rough spot. Maybe not the best timing, yeah. but if you're going to bet on anyone's new startup when the market's crashing, you're probably going to bet on someone who built a big successful company previously. They didn't give any details on funding, but I'm sure that they're like knocking on this guy's door regardless of if they think the underlying premise of the company makes sense or not. But speaking of poor timing, I think we should talk about what happened this week with Terra, the stablecoin that everyone was talking about this past month. Yes. So the question kind of being posed this week was, is Doquan the new Bernie Madoff? Doquan being the creator of Terraform Labs, which is kind of the originator of the stablecoin and the, and the community token. Yeah. So this whole currency has collapsed. We've talked about it pretty much every week since it happened. This really triggered the crypto market sell-off. It evaporated $60 billion, 60 or $70 billion in value, made a lot of people who were retail investors in this ecosystem just overnight poor. So like this was kind of a, a wild situation. Huge yeah, exactly. So there's there's been some fallout for that. And there's fallout, there's fallout specifically for Doquan and his team 
Right now, they're under investigation by South Korean authorities. Apparently, you know, it's been reported by local media that all of the employees at the company have been summoned by investigators to like see what went wrong here just because it's so much money. And again, the comparison between him and Bertie Madoff is funny here because it was fairly similar amounts that were defrauded in the Madoff case and just kind of like completely lost in this case. Yeah, wait, so so do you think that Do Kwan is the new Bernie? I, I mean, it, it, they're different situations. Whether this thing was like fundamentally flawed from the beginning, I think it's probably fair to say that Do Kwan just bit off more than he could chew here versus like fundamentally having malicious intent from the very beginning. He obviously didn't benefit from, I mean, I guess it's not entirely obvious, but he likely did not benefit from this thing crashing. It doesn't, no one said that he shorted it. He was hoping things right. would go well for it. So it didn't work out well for him. And the money just, the the currency itself imploded. So like the money went nowhere. Like this value just disintegrated versus all the money Madoff took in the US dollar. It benefited someone at some point. So the update here is actually that uh, people are backing Do Kwan yet again, right? <laughs> I mean, there's now a proposal that was approved for Luna 2.0 and for Terra 2.0. They're sort of recreating the currency. What's that all about? Yeah, so this is a little bit of a confusing thing that happens in crypto sometimes. Like when a currency, you know, something happens and the currency is just not recoverable. Maybe they're like is a massive hack and a huge percentage of the money is in like the hands of thieves. Sometimes stakeholders or like the central body will decide we're just going to fork the currency, move over to a completely different cryptocurrency, adopt this one and kind of build stuff around this currency instead. So with this, like the original Terra stablecoin and the Luna token, those are just completely destroyed. You know, the, They still exist. They, it's just like, we're just going to pretend that that didn't happen and we're going to let those coins just exist but be low in value and we're going to you know, move on and yeah. just not, not look back. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the original Luna token's trading at like 0. 0.00000 something. It's just in an awful position. So they migrated to this new blockchain, which launched over the weekend. And you know, it's kind of interesting. This guy like really screwed over a lot of people, but they airdropped, they essentially like gave new tokens in this cryptocurrency to people who held the old cryptocurrency. And now people are holding on to it. It already has like a several billion dollar market cap. Theoretically, it went through some pretty wild swings in its first few days of trading, which isn't entirely unusual for something with this much baggage behind it. But like, it's kind of funny, you know, his first thing was a disaster. Like how is and this the new currency doesn't really do anything. But people are just betting that the team is going to kind of do what's right by the holders and create an ecosystem around it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was my question, too, is like, why would people stick with this? I mean, the price of the new token basically dropped when it was first released, and it's pretty much recovered from there. Part of that is just like a lot of people got airdropped the token, so it's not like they actively had to buy into it. But part of it, too, is just that it's like when some companies get hit really hard in the public markets, right? I mean, sometimes they drop so low that people end up buying and they're like, well, it can't get any worse than this. So maybe the price will go up. And I wonder if that's sort of the motivation behind buying into something like Terra or Luna 2.0. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people who are buying into cryptocurrencies are simply gambling their money. And if you're gambling on someone, Facts. you might maybe you think it's worthwhile even if this guy really screwed up, ultimately Terra... Maybe he'll screw up less next time. Well, Terra grew to be like a very huge token. Like this guy still has those contacts. Maybe he's burnt a lot of them at this point. But in terms of betting on a founder who already built a successful company, there's some of that at play here where it's just like, 
eh, who cares? But worth noting, a part of this is people who got this new token couldn't immediately sell all of it. There's like some weird like vesting schedule or something. So like you couldn't immediately just get this and then sell it at market rate. Yeah, they've got to give it some time for the ecosystem to mature, I think is the, the thinking in doing that. Yeah, so we'll have to watch how all of these different crypto redemption stories end up working out. Yes, I'm very curious how this goes. This week, we sat down with Ty Haney to talk about her latest venture. Haney is the founder of Try Your Best, a blockchain-based platform connecting brands with their customers. Haney previously founded and served as CEO of athletic wear company Outdoor Voices. Ty, it's great to have you. Good to be here. Well, I want to start things off. I mean, people who are familiar with your background might know your athleisure empire, but now you're starting an NFT company. Could you kind of outline maybe what got you into this mess of an industry? Um, Yeah, of course. In terms of the crypto world, the Web3. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Quick background. I spent the last eight years building a direct-to-consumer company called Outdoor Voices in the activewear space. It became very popular, really kind of The guiding principle for the brand was inspiring people to move their bodies on a daily basis and really kind of positioned itself, maybe in contrast to Nike, and really kind of inspired people who didn't view themselves as athletes to get moving. And I left Outdoor Voices at the top of last year, leaving knowing two things, that from a brand building perspective, community really works, but we don't have the toolkit. We need to redefine what a community building toolkit is for a brand, in part for a few things. Operationally, we managed this massive community, a distributed network of many thousands of people kind of across the US, across a fragmented set of channels. So Slack, SurveyMonkey, Google Docs, etc. And it became really difficult to coordinate. And it also made community not measurable. So kind of packaged to that first piece, community is worth investing in, but it needs a redefining a new toolkit. And then the second piece is that the direct-to-consumer model in many ways is challenged. We've been so focused on customer acquisition for the last 10 years. CAC has exploded. It's becoming increasingly more expensive to buy customers online. And ultimately, it's not netting valuable customers. So the headline for every Didacy founder or peers of mine, heads of e-com, is loyalty. How are we keeping the customers that we have engaged and building their LTV over time? Okay, connecting that to kind of the crypto space. Our number one strength at OV was our community building. So this network that I had mentioned, we tapped to drive awareness. On a local level, they would host events for us. It became our most valuable way to introduce people to the brand. In fact, four times more valuable people coming in through that kind of higher touch experiential pathway versus online. Same thing, we'd bring them into the product development process, help us pick colorways, prints, et cetera. And it led to super high converting collection drops and a crazy affinity for kind of styles like the exercise dress, for example. Anyway, we, at the same time, I've become really excited about kind of the Web3 space and believe that crypto has a major potential to unlock a better business model for brands that are structurally reliant on ad platforms today. The headline being, and our toolkit really enabling, we're building Web3 community commerce tools that allow brands to directly connect with their most engaged, loyal users, encourage them to help them build, help us build, and then reward them for that participation. So take us on a little bit of like your personal crypto journey. Like obviously mm-hmm. someone probably showed the space to you and you kind of, you know, got interested in it. When did that happen and how did that happen? Yeah, it was still when I was at Outdoor Voices. Actually, my CFO at the time, who's my partner in, in 2IB, which stands for Try Your Best, he got way into investing in crypto, invested in Avalanche, which is the blockchain that we're built on. And started sending me kind of these supercharged communities of, you know, fully decentralized projects where people who had stake in the game 
were incentivized to help grow and they were rocket shipping, you know, like Board Ape Yacht Club, et cetera. We have tons of examples. And I was like, wow, there's something cool here that must, you know, I want to dig in further and see how that it could apply to the consumer brand. Awesome. Yeah. And I know you talked a little bit about sort of brands, especially DTC brands being reliant on platforms, but I'm curious why you decided to build this on the blockchain as a Web3 company instead of just sort of like, I don't know, a, a different format of a Web2 you know, a website or a social media platform that we're used to seeing? Yeah, I mean, the blockchain from a brand perspective is really interesting because it's decentralized. So as we're allowing brands to create an owned community channel where they're bringing in whatever amount of people from their existing audience into this channel, all of this relationship building, all of this kind of new way of interacting, and I can describe that, is on-chain. And so unlike an Instagram, for instance, where you're building community, but if you were to walk away, you don't have those relationships. All of this now lives on chain. So brands have those relationships forever. Got it. Yeah. And so I think for our listeners, it might be helpful if you can just sort of walk us through the experience on Try Your Best. Like from the customer perspective, what does that look like? I know you have like a wallet, but just sort of put the pieces together for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. I'll talk about the components. So we have a collectible gated community channel that brands essentially start with. We then have collectibles, which are NFT rewards, and those are minted on the blockchain. And we can support brand coins, which can work pretty simply like loyalty points. So you can earn brand coins, and then they can be redeemed for things like physical product, exclusive products, etc., whatever the brand wants to provide. We have a mechanism we've built called a rep card. And this is really a play to earn mechanism or module that the brand essentially sets a mission or a bounty, for instance, run seven days consecutively. And then they set a reward. And this mechanism called the rep card allows for brands to engage this audience around meaningful business driving initiatives, whether it be community-led content, UGC, reviews, things that are really valuable to direct-to-consumer brands. They can capture in this very customizable module that automatically rewards based on whatever the prompt and, and kind of reward was. I think people have talked about a lot about community in regards to NFT platforms and projects. I think one of the harder things to understand for me has been, are people bonding over the speculation and how much money they're making together, or do they actually like the product? Because so far, mm-hmm. a lot of the platforms seem to over-promote the speculation. And yeah. the product, if you weren't making money from it, they wouldn't like it. I'm kind of sure. gathering. Yeah, that's a really important point because right now we are not optimizing for the flip or like the secondary market of a collectible. We are really focusing on brands introducing collectibles that have utility. And I intentionally use the word collectible because I I do know that NFTs kind of have baggage and and we do kind of have to reintroduce what this technology can do that people will be more willing to adopt. But really, we're focusing on using collectibles to coordinate this more meaningful kind of engagement, where a collectible, if you're the owner of it, can unlock, let's say, access to an event or access to a private shopping page. I'm really focused on creating collectibles that essentially are experiential packages or programming packages. And a few things there. So the utility becomes important. But over time, these are things that should be able to accrue value and actually allow for the owners, the collectible holders to experience real dollars from, let's say, a sale. And can you share some examples with us of just some of the rewards that have resonated with your community specifically? Yeah, sure. So our first, the first brand that um, went live is called Joggy, and it's actually an incubated brand by our team. 
really with the intent to like show what good looks like and start to have a model for this type of new interaction. Out of the gates, it's a From Zero brand. We sold 500 founding member. They're called Joggy Doggy Collectibles. And each of those collectibles came with a set of perks. So the headline being revenue-based rewards. This group of 500 in perpetuity would have access to 5% of Joggy's revenue as we grow. And then the next one being come into the community, help us shape future product, the experience, et cetera. So essentially beta access, a free product when we go live, and then forever kind of friends and family discounting. So that is a really good example of like the package of perks that come with the purchase of a collectible. And to be honest, I was like, I'm not sure how this is going to be received. We sold out within 70 hours. It went super well. There's certainly appetite for getting into this space. But I think there's a lot of intimidation around kind of like the crypto world, et cetera. And we've really focused on obfuscating the complexity and making a very kind of simple frictionless on-ramp into Web3 for brands and fans. Got it. And so for the customer, in the case of Joggy, your first launch, what was the customer sort of giving in order to get those rewards? So each of the collectibles was $250. And there were many different use cases or ways in. So with a lot of the brands that we are going live with over the next few months, it's more of a take an action to get access to the group, or many people are going to like their top 1% of customers, for instance. So there's various ways in, but in all instances, it's a collectible gated channel where an action is required to get in. I think like brands and NFTs seem to have an interesting kind of complicated relationship at the moment. Like some brands are really leaning into them and like finding cool opportunities. Other brands are kind of like flirting with them a little bit than finding their consumers are pretty skeptical of the crypto world and NFT specifically. So I guess like how do you balance like there being those kind of two different camps? Totally. We're really focusing kind of on what we call new loyalty. So The toolkit we have today is meant to be like the default go-to loyalty solution for how you manage your community. And so it does feel maybe a bit web 2.5 and that's intentional. It's powered by the blockchain and we're definitely allowing brands to start to dip their toes into this world, but it's not complex. It feels like something you're used to interacting with, but more fun with animated collectibles and brand coins, et cetera. But it's been very intentional because like going fully decentralized right now is not going to accelerate adoption, especially in the physical product creating space. So obviously there's Mir in publishing, Royal, et cetera. Like we're working with companies that make physical product. We need before there's like full decentralization, the network here, the expertise here. So we've been very thoughtful with the toolkit about going slow and progressively decentralizing these types of things where we're starting with coins, collectibles and access, really thinking about this as a new loyalty program and then starting to introduce kind of further incentivized economic models like ownership in a style via collectible or the ability to kind of create a semi-DAO around products, et cetera. What you just talked about now was actually something I wanted to ask you and hear more about. I know that a lot of the brands that you work with are kind of catering to a similar demographic, right? Like millennials. And I know Mm -hmm. you've mentioned like wanting to work with the customer that would like want to buy from Parade or from Juneshine or those sorts of like DTC Mm -hmm. companies. Yeah. So I'm curious, like in the long term, do you see this? Do you see your customers as using this as their sort of like entryway into Web3? Do you think that they're going to become more involved in that space? Or is this just sort of like a one-off brand use case? Oh, yeah. Personally, I'm very passionate about bringing kind of this younger and in particular younger female audience into the Web3 space because of the potential for real financial upside. And for me, there's no better way to do that than by the brands that they love. Ultimately, the TYB wallet will be the one portal into more meaningful relationships with the brands that you love. 
and then a reflection of the cool shit that you've earned from you know your loyalty and participation with those brands. So yes, a hundred. This is like a long term thing with the hopes that and my belief that the future best in class brands, the future Nikes of the world, are going to be community founded and community led. And really, the future of brand building is two things. It's about co creation and incentivization, which is what the blockchain and crypto and this kind of new way of coordination unlocks. Kind of switching gears a little bit. I mean, over mm-hmm. the past few weeks, it's become a little bit more of an unpredictable time to be an early stage crypto founder. Yeah. Maybe talk about how you're kind of looking towards the future um, as things get a bit more uncertain with the broader market. Yeah, the markets are nuts. It's totally crazy. I think, yeah. um, <laughs> it, I mean, I don't even know what to say. That's totally nuts. The, the good thing is we're really focusing on using using the technology to power kind of a loyalty experience. So it's funny, I started initially having combos with brands, kind of both large retail, mid D2C, and then newly launched brands about six months ago. And I was like, everyone was saying, okay, I kind of get what Web3 is, but I don't think we want to be first. And then in January, we kicked off kind of our formal sales motion and the tune had changed. And everyone's like, we know we need to be there. We need direction. So we initially started out with a 10 partner pilot program that's now moved to at least 30 with many, many brands. I think it's 300 kind of in a pipeline upcoming. So the appetite is there, but I would say that's more around kind of the issues today from a business model perspective and, and CAC and less about the crypto world and whether they want to do it or not. But the solution that we have provided very much makes sense in terms of a better way to grow from where brands are today. From like a scaling perspective for your startup specifically, I mean, I guess like, how do you feel about your current funding going into mm-hmm. like a bear market where like funding might be a little harder to come by for early startups? Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, we're closing on 10 million currently. So this week, okay. which is great. Good timing, thank God. Um, and we have really great partners <laughs> that's, behind that's us. That's but quite good timing. A hundred percent. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, we're very fortunate. Um, and I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so... I guess I'm just curious about like sort of the culture behind the NFT community and the culture behind Web3. I know you mentioned that this is something that you want to be opened up, especially to like younger women, younger millennials in the space. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to resonate with them? How do you see that shift sort of happening? Because I know it, it can be like a really dry and intimidating sure. space from that perspective. Yeah. And that's like very much my goal is to make the space accessible. Here's what I think. I think the idea of community ownership is something that once people start to hear it enough and they start to get, it becomes really appealing. It's like, oh, I there's a way for me to experience upside for my participation. Whereas like today we're clicking likes and like, who is that benefiting? That's the type of engagement that you should be getting rewarded for. And then the idea that from a loyalty perspective, like loyalty should not just be viewed as transactional loyalty, like how much have you spent, but a much broader view on loyalty. So how much have you participated? How much have you shown up to an event? In addition to how much you've spent, et cetera, is a much more kind of like true view of community loyalty. And that makes it quite accessible to people who may not have all the dollars in the world to throw at something, but are willing to go, you know, help build. I think at the end of the day, it's really about making your fans an extension of the team. And so that's something that I like firsthand know people can get excited about is like, feeling part of the team and building and winning together. I think on that note, like one of the things I find pretty fascinating about the space is just as someone intimately involved with the D2C market, you know, paid marketing and CAC have mm-hmm. been like a like uphill battle for yeah. a, a lot of folks in the industry. But I guess like it's kind of weird to see it flip on its head a little bit where it's like crypto is still kind of paid marketing, but you're giving the money to the user through tokens in like something that hasn't fully realized. Sure. So I guess like how they're obviously different from the business perspective, but how yeah. like functionally different do they feel? Yeah. 
Well, I, I don't think direct-to-consumer as it's been pitched to us is all that direct. So we would spend 30 to 40% mm-hmm. of the dollars raised like directly to the big platforms, right? And so yeah. I think it makes much more sense to take, let's say, 5% of that and distribute that directly to the people who are going to continue spending dollars at your brand. So, And we're calling it community-integrated commerce. So I, I do think it's meaningfully different. Not saying that there's zero spend, but it's a much healthier and truly direct way to grow. Yeah. And I think like last point on that, I see like crypto venture capitalists on Twitter talking about like all these ways different types of consumer behaviors can be monetized. But I also wonder at the end of the day whether consumers think that way and if they Mm want to just enjoy something for the sake of it versus kind of like profiting, you know, quote unquote from it. Sure. So it sounds like you're kind of looking in both directions in terms of, yeah. Yeah, we're prioritizing like the relationship and and like absolutely if I if I point back to kind of my experience with Outdoor Voices, we had something called the blue doing things hat that you could only earn by showing up to participate in an event with us. And I think about that as like this physical brand souvenir that when you see someone on the trail with it on, you're like, high five, you're part of this community, super cool. That blue doing things hat, which is a physical thing, very obviously to me becomes digital, lives in a wallet and then unlocks specific access to things. So it has that additional kind of what I call programming. Like that's a very natural progression and, and nice way to use kind of the blockchain that doesn't doesn't need to come with the crypto baggage, if that makes sense. That's just something that's right. unlocked by the technology, which meaningfully can improve the relationship between brands and fans. So that's really where we're focused. Of course, with the idea that having one of the first 500 Blue Doing Things hats and let's say it, it gave you access to a, a private shopping page, fast forward to now, there's definitely someone who would buy that for more than you paid for it, which was right. nothing you attended. So the ability to accrue value over time is certainly interesting, but not what we're prioritizing today. I think, you know, expanding on that a little bit where you're mm-hmm. talking about some of the takeaways from, you know, you learn from Outdoor Voices, I guess, like very broadly, you started this big company, it became super successful. You left it. I mean, as you look at that experience and you look at starting a new company, what do you want to change? What do you want to do differently? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I was 23 when I started Outdoor Voices, which was awesome, but also... <laughs> Also, like, you know, a lot to learn. So I look back on that, package it, grateful for all the learnings, being able to be a second time founder, fucking awesome. Um, And a lot of the team that I worked with in the past is with me here at TYB. We're being a lot more prudent on how much we're raising. I think in a lot of ways, like we were overcapitalized. And we also had kind of a three-pronged, we were being pulled kind of in three different ways from a growth strategy standpoint, part performance marketing, part community, 360 efforts, and then part like traditional retail. And like, ultimately we got caught in the crosshairs of that. Mm. The number one thing I learned was being the CEO means you're fully accountable. And like, that was the best thing to learn kind of coming out of that experience. And I just feel like I'm armed with so many learnings from that experience to apply to TYB that I am doing it a lot more thoughtfully, but really taking kind of what our number one strength was, which is community building and and making it available for other brands to do well. I want to ask you one last question, Ty, about TYB and what you're building. So I'm wondering, you know, I know that you're working with these DTC brands and a lot of them have really loyal customers that maybe have super high order values when they do place an order. Do you think that this type of marketing is suitable for all companies or do you see it as more specific to like DTC brands? We're working with more than D2C. So we're being very thoughtful about kind of the, the brands that we're putting together for the first year to make sure that the case studies, for instance, are like successful. And there there certainly are companies that like already have a very enthusiastic engaged fan base and we're starting there. I would imagine like there's ways for brands of all shapes, sizes, looks, feels, etc. to use this and be successful. But that's really what we're going to learn over the next year. But we're focused right now on like these brands like you mentioned with like crazy engaged customers that can and are willing to kind of like 
be engaged more so and and can yeah. have a supercharging effect using this toolkit. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ty, for spending time with us. It was Thank great you. chatting with you. Yeah, you guys as well. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank Talk you. Soon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. Check out the links in our show notes for some of TechCrunch's crypto coverage this week. You can also follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.